What's going on, Hume? You guys feeling all right tonight? Did you have a good day? I look old. One more time. I look cold. I'm going to take that as a compliment. I am so thankful to be here with you and uh, glad that we get to jump into God's word again. As you just saw on the video that played, tonight we're going to talk about a sobering reality. There's probably not going to be a lot of uh, jokes and a lot of moments of kind of levity, probably not a lot of ha-has in the sermon tonight because we have to talk about something that's really serious, but we have to talk about something that is necessary. Tonight we're going to talk about the truth of sin. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word, but the video that we just watched did a beautiful job of describing it and helping us to feel the weight of it. And I only hope to add to that from God's word tonight. On January 28th, 1986, the entire country, and in fact a huge portion of the entire world, gathered around their TVs to watch with hope as a $3.2 billion machine called the Space Shuttle Challenger took off. It was crewed by seven of the finest astronauts from the NASA program, and just moments after it left the Earth's surface and was headed for space, everyone who was gathered around their TVs watched with horror as it exploded in a ball of flames and then rained back down to the Earth, killing all seven of the astronauts. Now, Of course, there was a massive investigation that was done into why this happened and what went wrong. And it turns out that the entire crash of this $3.2 billion machine with seven precious lives on board was caused by what's called an O-ring. And if you've ever done anything with um, mechanical engineering or engines, you will know what an O-ring is. It is a little plastic, a little rubber seal that's about this size. And what it does is it seals a joint so that uh, gas or liquid doesn't move into a compartment that it shouldn't. But what happened on this day was the investigation revealed that one of the O-rings had a dysfunction at the temperature that launch day was. And because of this little tiny plastic ring, some gas got from one chamber into a chamber where it should not have been and made the entire thing malfunction and then explode. The worst thing about all of it was that the O-ring in question was not completely unknown to NASA. In fact, the Challenger blew up in 1986, but In the investigation, they uncovered some data from a test in 1977 that showed that that O-ring would fail at the temperature that launch day was. And so the most tragic part of this entire thing was that they had the information about the problem, but someone somewhere either forgot it or chose to ignore it, and the results were catastrophic. 
And the reason I tell you that story is because it illustrates the very reason we are talking about sin tonight. And the reason is this. You cannot solve a problem you will not admit you have. You cannot find a solution to a problem that you ignore or you minimize or you forget or you pretend like it's not an issue. And when there's something so significant on the line, it is critically important that we not only know that there is a problem, but that we understand the problem itself. So tonight, we are going to talk about the problem of sin, and I'm going to encourage us not to deny it, not to minimize it, not to overlook it, not to ignore it, but rather to face it, to look at the problem of sin square in the face and to try to understand it and comprehend it, not so that we can wallow in misery, but so that we can seek a solution because we understand the problem. That is what we're doing tonight, and that's why we have to talk about something so serious, because it's critically important. Imagine for a moment that you were very sick. Imagine you had some symptoms that you had never had before and you couldn't explain. If you went to the doctor, the number one goal of the doctor would be to figure out what was wrong, to get to the source of the problem so that you could be properly treated. And that's a little bit about what we're doing tonight as we try to understand sin. If you went to the doctor's office and you were sick, they would do three things, at least three things. Number one, they would identify the patient. Number two, they would describe the disease. And number three, they would give you what's called a prognosis. Once they understood what was wrong, what was ailing you, they would give you a prognosis. Here's what you should expect next. Here's the toll this will take on your body. Here will be the side effects. Here is what this is going to do to you, and here's what you should be looking out for. And those are the three things that we're going to do tonight as we try to understand the sickness of sin. We're going to try to understand the problem by talking about who it affects, what it is, and where it leads. And hopefully by the end of this night, all of us in this room will have an understanding of the problem of sin. So we'll do it this way. Understanding our problem, here's the first element to understanding our problem, who sin affects. And who sin affects is everyone. Sin affects everyone. I want to begin tonight by taking you to a, a small section of John chapter 8. We've been moving through the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and we get to chapter 8, and Jesus is a polarizing figure. He's got some people who really like him, and they're following him, and then he's got other people who oppose him and hate him and want to kill him. And when we get to John chapter 8, we have this very uh, kind of shocking story that happens right in the very beginning when Jesus is out in the middle of the city, and he's teaching in broad daylight in public, and a bunch of the religious authorities, they catch a woman guilty of sin, undeniably guilty of sexual sin, and they drag her out in front of Jesus, and they say, Jesus, the law says that we should, the, we should stone this woman to death. The penalty that she deserves, according to the law of Moses, is execution. What do you think we should do with this woman, Jesus? And so we've got this moment where we are going to see Jesus teach us something about how he understands and how he interacts with sin. Because it's not like this woman was wrongfully accused. She was guilty. And she gets dragged in front of Jesus and they say, Jesus, what should we do with her? 
John chapter 8 and verse 7 says this, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So you can picture this scene. All of these religious leaders accuse this woman. They tell Jesus that the rightful penalty is death by stoning. And as they do it, they all have rocks in their hand as if they are relishing this moment of justice when they will get to bring the hammer of justice down upon this guilty woman. They all have literal rocks in their hands that they are going to throw at her until she is dead. And Jesus looks at them and says, hey, if you have no sin, then go ahead. You throw a rock at her. If you have no blemishes on your record, if you have no imperfections, if you have no sin, then go ahead and throw a stone. Now, what's so remarkable about this story is that after a moment of honest self-reflection, apparently every single person in that crowd and certainly every single one who had a rock in their hand were forced to drop the rocks and to walk away because they could not honestly say that they had no sin. This brief little narrative, it illustrates a sobering but a very necessary truth for, under, for us to understand, and it's this. Sin affects everyone. There is no human being, not in this room and not to the ends of the earth, there is no human being that is not affected by the reality of sin. And the Bible tells us this clearly and repeatedly. The Bible tells us that everyone is sinful. Look at just these four verses. These are four among many. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, surely there is not a righteous man or woman on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7 gives us such a potent and clear and obvious truth. There is no one in the world who never sins. Every single one of us is stained by the presence of sin. Sometimes when we talk about things like sin and we think about things like sin, it is our natural reaction to try to deflect and to blame and to point and to make sure it's someone else's problem. But the reality of sin that we need to grapple with tonight is that it's not someone else's problem, it is our problem. What the Bible reveals to us, which was so helpfully illustrated by the opener that you watched on this very stage, is that we inherited sin in our nature. Sin is not only something we do. In just a moment, we're going to define sin and help us to understand its nature and what it is. But 
First, we need to understand that all of us, it's not just something we do. Sinners are what we are. Sinners is how we are born. It is in our, it's like it's coded into our DNA, this sinful rebellion against God. Because Adam and Eve chose sin and the curse of sin entered into the world, it was spread through the tree of the entire human race. And now when we are born, we are born into a sinful nature. But before you say, well, thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. How dare you? If I was in the garden, I would have done better. You need to remember that you and I are not just sinful by nature. We're sinful by choice. You and I choose to sin. We want to sin. And we do sin. From the very earliest opportunities, sin marks our life. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. Sin affects everyone. Now, you might be rightfully asking at this point, well, that sounds like bad news, but can you tell me what sin is? If sin is really my problem, then it would be good for me to understand what it is and what it looks like and what it means. And that's the second element of understanding our problem. It's this, what sin is. Sin is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. There's many ways that you could conceive of sin and understand sin, but I think one of the simplest to understand is this idea of rebellion. Rebellion is simply this. Rebellion is when rightful authority is dishonored and disobeyed. When rightful authority is dishonored and disobeyed. That's what rebellion is. Now, if you ever want to know what rebellion looks like, just have some children. <laughs> you've seen my kids. Like, I know you've seen them wheeling around camp, and they are cute as all get out, and they are juvenile delinquents. They are a couple of little rascals. It's this crazy thing about, like, little kids. Like, infant children, you do not have to teach them rebellion. No one has to go to a kid and say, hey, kid, let me show you how to disobey mom and dad. They've got that on lockdown from the moment of their birth. They don't need to be taught it. The kids have this rebellious spirit hardwired into them. And it, and it starts like super, super young. I remember when Titus was very little and he was just learning to crawl. And he wanted to crawl to everything and touch it. And he's kind of exploring the world. And he would crawl over to a power outlet and he would begin to reach his hand up. And I would say, Titus, don't touch that. And he would look at me and he would go like this. <laughs> and sometimes he would go like this. Because it's just like hardwired into him. Like sometimes he, he's at camp here and I'm like, hey, Titus, there's cars coming, stop running. And he's like, got it, dad, Usain Bolt mode, activated. <laughs> he just has this like rebellious thing in him. Now, as funny as rebellion seems when it's like a little kid and they do goofy things, rebellion is a tragedy. And the consequences, I know when it's a little baby and he's, he's like touching the plug, because you don't want him to, it seems a little innocuous and a little, uh, a little silly, like the consequences aren't that big. But rebellion is a devastating tragedy because God has made the world such that authority, rightful authority, is a good thing. 
I know we don't like the concept of authority. Oftentimes we want to buck authority. We want to circumvent authority. We want to get away from authority. But God made structures of authority for our good. God gave children, moms and dads, to be in rightful authority over them. And moms and dads who raise children in rightful authority are only a metaphor. They are a living picture of the rightful authority that God has over everything that he has created. And what sin is is when you and I, as created beings under the rightful authority of God, when we look at him and we say, I heard what you said and I refuse to do it. This has been happening since the very beginning of the human race. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell us this story of a good and generous God who creates all things by the word of his power and he rules and reigns over it. And then as the pinnacle of his creation, he puts humanity into the garden and he gives them clear instructions, not because he doesn't want blessing for them, but because he does. And he tells them the way to live that will lead to their greatest joy and their most flourishing But what they choose to do is they choose to hear what God said and do exactly the opposite. And it's not as if they weren't aware. God not only gave them clear instructions and very simple rules to obey, he also told them exactly what would happen if they disobeyed, and they still did. They listened to what God said, and they did the exact opposite. They rebelled against God. They dishonored, and they disobeyed the rightful authority over them. And you and I, just like our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, you and I have rebelled against God. We have heard the instructions of God. We have received what God has commanded of us, and we've chosen to do the opposite. We've dishonored and disobeyed our rightful authority in our very creator. Not just our mom, not just our dad, not our teacher, not our coach, not our uncle, our God, the one who created us. And this is what sin is, and this is what it looks like. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin looks like distorting what God has created. Sin looks like transgressing the laws that God gives. Sin looks like going over the boundaries God sets. Sin looks like failing to complete the duties that God assigns. Sin looks like acting outside of the will that God expresses. And sin, most of all, looks like rejecting the relationship that God offers. He is our rightful authority, and in rebellion against him, we have turned our backs, and we've dishonored and disobeyed. One theologian said it this way, which I think paints a really helpful and potent picture. He said this, what is sin? What is sin? He says, it is the glory of God, not honored. It is the holiness of God, not revered. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. 
the presence of God not prized and the person of God not loved. That is sin. Now, maybe you hear all of this and you think to yourself, yeah, I mean, I hear you, Nick, but I'm just not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. I mean, I know bad people. I've read about them in the history books. I've got some of them in my school. Maybe one of them sitting next to me right now. I know bad people. But I'm not a bad person. Maybe that's your contention. You hear, you hear things like rebel, and you think, well, that's just not me. I'm a rule follower. I'm pretty good at coloring within the lines and doing what I'm told. I, I just don't think I'm that bad of a person. But the question we have to ask is, according to what standard? What standard are you using to measure how good or bad of a person are you? Because if you are using another person to measure yourself, you are using a standard that will always let you down. God's standard when he evaluates what he has created is not the relative standard of one another. His standard is himself, his character, his nature, his law. This is the standard that God uses, and the reality is that all of us, you and I, and every single other human being on planet Earth, falls short of the standard that God has set. Because God is perfectly holy, and in his word, like the video said, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and ain't none of us ever going to hit that bar. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us have broken his law. And anywhere that your life right now is out of sync with what God has commanded. And if you want to just for a moment take a survey, go take a look at the Ten Commandments. That you would never prefer anything to God. That you would never speak the name of God or invoke the name of God in a dishonoring way or take the name of God in vain that you would never lust, that you would never covet, that you would never steal, that you would never disobey your parents. Not a one of us gets away from that list of Ten Commandments, let alone all of the other things in the expressed will of God, without failing the test. All of us have rebelled against God. So we've established, as we understand this problem, who sin affects, it affects everyone, and what it is, it is rebellion. It is looking at God and saying, God, I know what you want, and I refuse to do it. All of us have done that, by our nature and by our choice. And perhaps the most sobering thing that we need to discuss is the third as we understand our problem, we need to understand where sin leads, and it leads to death. Sin leads to death. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know that in the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, the four children, they go through the wardrobe, and they end up in this kind of winter wonderland, and they're cruising about, and the second son, his name is Edmund, he runs into a woman on a, on a big kind of horse-drawn sleigh. And she entices him to come up into the, the sleigh and to go with her with this delicious treat that is called Turkish Delight. Now, side note, 
I tasted Turkish delight one time. It's disgusting. It tastes like soap. It's awful. I mean, it is straight up disgusting. So when I read the story, I was like, oh, Turkish delight, that sounds awesome. It must be really good for to trick Edmund. And then I tasted it and I was like, Edmund, you idiot. What is wrong with you? It's so not the point. Everybody rein it back in. The white witch, you come to find out, is her name, and she entices Edmund with this delicious treat. Now, because he falls for this delicious treat, because he sees what looks enticing to him and he takes the offer of it, he finds himself on the brink of death, a prisoner putting his brothers and sisters and in fact all of Narnia in grave danger because he saw something that was enticing to his eyes and to his desires and he pursued it. But what he comes to find out is that what looked like a delicious treat was actually a deadly trap. And this is probably the most pernicious and devastating and difficult reality of sin today is it so often looks enticing. It looks good. It looks sweet. It looks like something that we want to participate in. And it looks like it will bring, it will bring pleasure and joy. It looks like a treat. It looks like something we want, but what we find is that when we chase it, when we go after sin, when we choose to pursue something that we know is rebellion against God, but we do it anyways, we find out that sin looks attractive, but it is actually poisonous. Sin is actually deadly. Sin leads to death. I want to show you from God's word three places that sin leads. Three texts will come up on the screen. The first one is from a little bit later in John chapter 8. First, death leads, it leads us to be enslaved to evil. To be enslaved to evil. John 8.34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You may be tempted to think that you can kind of choose at will whether or not you will participate in sin. But what this text tells us is that by our very nature and by our choice, by what we have participated in in rebelling against God, we have locked ourselves away with the shackles of sin. And until someone else sets us free from those shackles, we cannot escape of our own accord. This is the, this is the sobering reality of where sin leads. It leads to enslavement. It leads to you being trapped with no hope of escape on your own power. The, the reality of sin is that you and I, apart from the grace of God, cannot choose any other way. We have no option except to sin because we have enslaved ourselves to sin. Sin leads to enslavement to evil. Second, sin leads to separation from God. Separation from God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities 
have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If you look throughout the Bible, you'll find that the face of God and the gaze of God is not merely him looking at you or observing you. His gaze upon you is an emblem or a symbol of his blessing upon your life. Maybe you've heard the famous passage in Numbers chapter 6 that says, May God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. What's meant there is that God is the source of all good. And when he looks upon you, he intends to share some of that good with you. When God looks upon you, when God's face shines upon you, he gives you his blessing. He gives you his favor and his protection and his love. And what Isaiah 59.2 tells us is that when we live in iniquity and sin, God hides his face from us and he will not hear us or look upon us. Because we have rejected his offer of relationship and we have disobeyed the laws and the boundaries that he set out for our good. And so Isaiah 59 says that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. There is a gap, there is a chasm that exists between us and the source of everything that is good. Our sin has made a, a, a gap that we cannot cross between us and God. And then last, where does sin lead? It leads us to be enslaved to evil. It leads us to separation from God. And it leads us to punishment by death. Punishment by death. The very first time God was giving instructions to Adam and Eve, he told them that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in the garden was forbidden from them to eat from. And he said to them, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the punishment for rebellion against God remains the same for you and for me. When we choose to rebel against God, when we choose to live in sin, the ultimate outcome is punishment by death. That we die. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve, what we have earned with our rebellion against God, what we deserve to be paid, our wages, is death. Now, certainly this includes physical death at the end of your life. It, it certainly includes kind of the devastation and the pain and the suffering in this world that sin causes, of which death is only the fullest expression. And yet something even more serious than that is meant. There is not just a physical death, there is also a second death. The punishment that you and I deserve is not merely at the end of our lives, we will have our hearts stop beating and pass out of existence, but that at the end of our lives, we will receive the just judgment of a holy God in hell. That's what our sin deserves. We deserve the wrath of a righteous and holy God because we have rebelled against him and dishonored him. We have spit in his face and turned the other way and he is transcendent and holy and good and righteous. And so we have earned punishment by death. Now this is a heavy message. 
And even right at this moment in the room, you can kind of feel how, how weighty this is. So let's, let's just chat for a moment. Let's, let's talk. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing this message and you're thinking, this sounds depressing, this sounds heavy, this sounds hard. And it is some of those things. It is a difficult message. But maybe you've heard this message many times. I know a lot of you come from churches, and maybe you've attended there for years, and this is not the first time you've heard a preacher talk about sin. I just wonder in this room whether you've heard this for the first time tonight or you've heard this for the thousandth time tonight. Does anyone ever think to themselves, and let's just have a moment of honesty. Does anyone ever think to themselves, you can raise your hand. Does anyone ever think, that's not fair? That's not fair. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound fair. I've thought that at times. Let's just, let's talk about this for a minute because I think when we, when we come up with these kind of accusations against God that this, this isn't fair, the way you choose to deal with sin isn't fair, I think it reveals in us this really, this really poor double standard. And here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes, what we do is we look around at the world, and we see evil in the world, and we see, we see murder and rape and genocide and violence and abuse and evil. We, we see the darkness of the world, and we grieve it, and it's like we look up into heaven and we say, God, aren't you going to do something about this? And sometimes we actually use the evil of the world as an argument for the reason that God couldn't exist. Because how in the world could a good God allow all of this evil to happen? Anyone know what I'm talking about, that feeling? This, this deep desire for justice to be done and for evil to be done away with. We ache for this. We see evil and we're like, God, can't you deal with that? But here's the double standard. God looks down at us and he says, I am dealing with it. This is the reason that sin leads to judgment because God is a just and holy God and he hates evil way more than you or I do and he is determined to do something about it. So here's what I mean by a double standard. We look up at God and we say, God, aren't you going to do something about the evil? And he looks down and he says, yes, I will judge every evil person for their evil deeds. And when he tells us about the judgment, we say, no, God, that's not fair. You can't have it both ways. Do you want God to do something about evil or not? And I don't know about you, but I want a God who is committed to do something about the evil in this world. Don't you? Don't you want a God who will make everything right at the end of time? Don't you want a God who will see all of the darkness and all of the corruption and all of the evil in the world and do something about it? If we served a God who looked at all of the devastation that sin has caused and kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, no big deal. I'm just telling you, that would be a pitiful and pathetic and evil God. And the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible is just, and he is good, and he is committed to do something about evil. Imagine a judge just on a human level. Imagine a judge who stood in a courtroom, and before him, 
was a criminal against which he had undeniable evidence of a terrible crime. And imagine that judge looked at the criminal and said, eh, you can go. It's no big deal. There would be protests in the streets because that judge had so abdicated his responsibility to uphold justice. God is a good judge, and God is committed to doing something about evil. Here's the reason we have this double standard. The reason is we want God to do something about evil when we think it's someone else's evil. The message that I am here to deliver you tonight is this, that God will do something about evil even when it's our evil. And that's a, man, that's hard to grapple with. We've got to come face to face with the reality that all of us are complicit in the evil of sin in the world. That if God has justice to dole out for the evil that has been committed, it's not merely going to land on people out there who are really bad and criminals and people who have records and people who have done really bad things. God's justice will fall upon us unless we have a Savior. This is what we need to understand, that God will not just do something about their evil. God will do something about our evil. Sin is rebellion. Sin affects everyone, and sin leads to death. It is good, and it is right for us to feel the weight of this problem. And it's good for us to be really clear about what the problem is. I was just thinking this morning as I was preparing for this message of a friend of mine He's an older man in our church. His name is Mark. He's such a sweet guy. But for the last, uh, like, I think five months, Mark has been suffering from really, really bad dizziness and inner ear pressure and at times like vertigo, and it's been debilitating for him. He actually many days cannot get out of bed because it feels like the whole world is spinning around him and it makes him nauseous and he has been to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor and he's gone to this specialist and this neurologist and this surgeon and this naturopath and this chiropractor and this and he's done every test that you can possibly imagine to try to figure out what is going on and he has no answers. And after five or six months of this, I will go to be with Mark and I'll just sit there and feel the pain and the weight of suffering without any idea why, without any clear answers. And the reason that I'm committed to stand in front of you and the reason Hume is committed to bring you this hard message is because we love you enough to not allow you to suffer without any understanding of why. Sin brings suffering into your life. Every, every moment of pain and guilt and shame and fear and anxiety, every bit of suffering you have ever experienced in this world is because of sin. I don't want you to suffer and not understand the problem. Because remember, you cannot solve a problem you don't understand and you cannot solve a problem you won't admit you have. But if you understand that there's a problem, then you can find a solution to the problem. 
And there is a solution. Though the burden of sin is ours, there is a way for your sin to be removed. John chapter 1 and verse 29 says, this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Tonight, what we need to do is we need to feel the burden of sin so that we would long for the Lamb of God to take it away. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us enough to be honest with us. Thank you that you are committed to not sugarcoat reality, to not try to avoid a conversation that is difficult, to not try to have us misunderstand the devastating reality of our own sin. You love us enough to tell us the truth. You are like a good doctor who sees a sickness on the scan and is willing to have the hard conversation to tell us about what we face. And so God, I pray tonight, even in this room, that you would minister to us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we would be appropriately burdened by the reality of our sin. God, I pray that you would keep us from avoiding it or skirting around it or denying it. God, I pray that you would keep us from putting up obstacles or pointing fingers or giving excuses and you would just help us to grieve the reality of our own sin. We believe that you are a holy God and that you created all things and that we have rebelled against you. And God, I'm praying that as we feel the burden of our sin, that you would lead us in your kindness to repentance and to salvation. God, I know that until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so I pray tonight sin would be bitter to us so that Christ would be the delight of our souls and our Savior forever. We love you. We pray all these things in his name. Can you say amen?